0: Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. In this episode, we had an enlightening conversation with Erin Sharoni about ethics in the field of artificial intelligence. Erin is incredible. She is a Master of Bioethics degree candidate at Harvard Medical School and a seasoned biotechnology executive with expertise in longevity, epigenetics, and AI. Erin has over 15 years of experience building products and brands in molecular health, media, and finance. She has held roles at top financial institutions like Bridgewater Associates, biotech startups like Tracker, and worked as an anchor and commentator on national television. Erin sits on the advisory board of Animal Save Movement, a global animal rights organization that aims to end animal exploitation through the act of bearing witness and through her work is passionate about developing animal-free research technologies. Erin holds an additional master's degree in the field of biology from Harvard and is currently a researcher for the National Institute of Health's AI program, Bridge to AI, where she focuses on the ethics of AI in three-dimensional cell mapping for disease prediction. We hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Thank you so much for joining us today. Erin, thank you so much for your time, for uh, agreeing to speak about your your passion with the work that you do. Um, For the audience, we had a brief conversation a few weeks ago, and we learned so much from you from the concept of uh, bioethics in the field of artificial intelligence, and we wanted to kind of expand on that more. So thank you so much for your time.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I've followed you guys for a long time. Uh, you know, we, we share similar uh, views and missions, perhaps, about health and the planet and animals. So I'm excited to be talking to you about uh, another interest that intersects as well.
2: Uh, absolutely. I think the overlying or the underlying fabric that connects everything is ethics, so you're in the right field, whatever we're doing is driven by that. Uh, it would be great to kind of start with a definition, not, you know, not, we're not going to make it too bombastic and go into the, uh, uh, you know, the the, the dialogues of uh, um, uh, Socrates uh, and, and all of that. But but the general idea of, um, first of all, what is ethics in your perspective and, and why did you get interested in it? Sure. I think uh, if you had twenty
1: ethicists in a room, you'd get
2: twenty different
1: answers. So I say this with uh, humility and grace, and with the disclaimer that you know I'm a I'm a student about to graduate uh, from the bioethics program at, uh, at Harvard Medical School. So I don't pretend to be uh, a designated bioethicist just yet. And you know I am very close to the learnings, though, because I've spent so much time over the past two years studying this. Um, So that's my little disclaimer. Um, And I would say, you know, the field of ethics and in particular bioethics is really about taking a look at the world and thinking about how we should approach things and then how we can and how we do and how all those things might intersect. And there are there's vernacular, like, frameworks and principles, and there's different, uh, you know, uh, ethical schools of thought. So some people might be familiar with uh, Kantian ethics or um, utilitarian ethics like Peter Singer. So anyone listening who's in the animal uh, animal welfare space, right space, will know Peter Singer. Um, and so each of those ethicists sort of takes a, a set of principles and applies it to a framework and says, you know, here's a normative uh, way to consider the world, normative being... How we think we ought to to behave and how we ought to live in the world um, and make decisions. Um, but there's so there's such a wide variety uh, of of ways to approach ethics and the way that we're taught in school, at least in my program is, you know, this focus on pluralism, uh, which I think is great. And so it's you know, taking a plurality of views and ethical frameworks into consideration, which is really helpful because, we live in a very diverse uh, society, and there's many different cultures in the world that we live in with many different schools of thought, and it's really important to, uh, you know, I think to, to allow um, a plurality of voices and views doesn't mean they're all equally correct, um, but some basic guiding principles and bioethics would be things folks are probably quite familiar with, like the, the idea of autonomy, um, what one can do uh, with their body and what, what they deserve, and Um, what ought to be done in that respect, and and concepts like justice, uh, beneficence, right, kindness, uh, doing something beneficently, um, and then doing no harm as well. So there's many other principles and ways to think about it, but trying to keep it high level, those are some of the things. And um, the way that I came to bioethics uh, is is a whole other story, Um, but in short, Despite being very interested in it for a very, very long time, I, I came from the biotechnology sector, uh, which I still work in, and being an, an executive in that sector, working with tools like AI uh, and, 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 and medicine and diagnostics and wellness and longevity and epigenetics and all these different things, which have all of their own ethical consideration. What I recognized fairly quickly with some uh, challenges I had with my personal moral compass was that I didn't see ethics being applied anywhere outside potentially legal and regulatory. And, mm-hmm. and so there wasn't really much philosophizing about, are we doing the right thing? Should we be doing this? Who is it benefiting? What might the ramifications be? Sure, you think about equity and you know people don't want to be discriminatory, but it's so much broader than that. And so because I build product for a living, I thought, wow, we're really missing the boat here because if you could c- take ethical considerations in, you know, in, in the beginning of the process of creating a product, whether it be a medical device, a therapeutic, a digital health product, and you could integrate some of those concepts, surely you'd come up with a better product, right? Um, and so what I noticed was that there was this friction where people thought, well, ethics is just going to constrain us. No one wants to hear from the naysayer. And I was saying, well, hold on. Let's think about it much more creatively. Because if we understand these frameworks and principles and we can integrate them at the start, starting line, and then remain flexible throughout and as we're reactive, you're going to have much stronger, more powerful technology that runs less of a risk of being demonized and that potentially could help more people in better ways. So that's what motivated me to go into the field.
2: No, that's that's remarkable Amazing. absolutely Incredible. i mean I, I think that um we are at a very very important impasse at uh, time in history where we really have to address this uh, urgently because the consequences are, are could potentially be dire um you and i we we all um, feel the same way about some of the ethics that are going on in the animal uh you know uh, agriculture and how you know we without even thought we're we're Creating a factory system that that eliminates and um, uh, eighty you know billion animals uh, a, a year, and then that's not even the sea animals. And we have to address that. I mean, whether we believe in eating meat or not eating meat or or any of those concepts, we we really have to address that because if we're ethical beings, which we hope that we are, which means that we actually think beyond our own boundaries of concern, however we, however we define those, Uh, we really have to think about um, how we define suffering and how do we find the other. And and I'm not going to get into too much of the uh, the nuance of that, but that's a critical factor. That's a critical factor we have to address. Now, when it comes to technology, we're facing a similar dilemma, which is power and the the distribution of power as it relates to autonomy, which you just Mm -hmm. said, and, and, and the relationship of that power as it relates to rights, to suffering or abatement of suffering, or the other side of it is flourishing of humanity or yes. who's going to control it, who's going to determine what's right or wrong, who's going to determine, you know, what percentage of people should get what. And and we don't, and we're at a point where those determinations can be made autonomously or by a few at a maximal level, way more than the the, the changes that industrial revolution brought uh, some of the things that uh, that uh, questions that i actually asked chat gpt to give me 10 <laughs> dilemmas uh that that we might face with with uh, with uh, uh with um, uh, you know co- uh, the ons- uh, the c- coming of ai and i already had thought about these things it was uh, an
0: interesting conversation yeah it, it, and I'm sure a very meta
2: <laughs> yeah exactly and and it said uh, sorry let me just so it's an existential risk um, you know, intelligence growing so rapidly that we have no control over it. Yeah. It's an employment risk because AI and and all the ramifications, as far as machine learning, as far as technology and 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 robotics that can do better surgery than any surgery and 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 better, you know, machine creation than any human being, it will take over all the jobs. So that's another thing. Privacy issues, where privacy is going to be gone. Uh, cybersecurity issues, which which is another factor. Autonomous weapons. That was a scary one. I I hadn't thought about that. That was a
0: new one for me. Yeah.
2: So so police departments and militaries who say, and we can always find justification that that's bad enough that I will start creating autonomous weapons that can kill millions without even thinking about it. Uh, Bias and discrimination, uh, where because it has no, no intrinsic ethics, but that we've thought about, these little eddies, streams of bias, will actually take over, and they would make decisions according to those biases. The machines will, the AI. Yeah. Um, Controllable and regulation, superintelligence alignment. We would not be aligned because we would be bacteria to it. This is actually ChatGPT telling me this. That's what's scary. You're like, are you are you talking to me? Are you are you talking talking to me? Yeah. Um, so that's ChatGPT misuse and malicious use and then social isolation. That's an interesting one where uh, the machine, these AIs would create worlds that are better than the world we live in. And we know the addictive patterns. We've seen it in mice models. We've seen it in human models that we would give up even food and sex and all of that for the level of pleasure that the machine could produce. And we would go into isolations and would just wither away as beings and the machine. So I was like, okay, if ChatGPT is giving me these, I'm a little scared now. <laughs> yes. Yeah, these were that was these were the thoughts that ChatGPT had about itself, you know, taking over potentially.
1: Pretty dystopian. Uh, it is, but you know, it, it's it's uh, that's really funny. It is a very meta conversation that the machine is yes. thinking about its own future and, t- you know, but but I always say to people, to some degree, if you sort of if you sort of back up and like let the fear subside a bit and it's warranted fear um and we talked about this in my neuroethics class to some degree we're already there right yes the, we, we already have you know this thing uh you can see my <laughs> dog <there. laughs> It's telling yes. you you know how to think what to buy how to vote oh yeah see great mind. Um, and so so I, I, I say that sort of jokingly, but not, is that, like, we, you know, it's not something that's far off. It actually is here already. ChatGPT yeah. is just one very obvious manifestation. But I think the more maybe concerning manifestations are the ones that we actually don't even pay attention to uh, unless we really think about it. And, and social media or your phone is one, one example of that. But, you know, applying this technology to medicine is particularly interesting, particularly powerful, and I think comes with its own set of ethical considerations. Gotcha. Yeah, right.
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. The the trolley experiment is being played every day, every minute, in every realm, yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Um, sure. I would love to kind of hear, you know, how does it work? So I know that the concept of ethics has been a part of uh, developing uh, processes and projects. And, um, you know, as, as a physician, I know that we always had an ethics department and multiple different companies also have a representation of bioethics in that realm. So if you could give me, us and the audience an idea of the involvement of ethics in decision-making in different realms, how long has it been going? Is this a new concept? Has it existed for a long time? And what is what is the current features of bioethics and its involvement looks like in our daily lives?
1: hmm It's a great multi-part question. I will attempt to answer it. Um, ethics has been around since, since the Greeks, if not before, right? So people pontificating yeah. about how should we behave and how can you create maybe rules or structures in which society can hopefully flourish uh, in a way that we believe is normative, normatively optimal. Um, Bioethics uh, itself, obviously, has has not been around as as a field, as a designated field, quite as long. And I would be incorrect without googling right now to give you an exact date. Um, but if you spoke to someone who had a little bit of training in it, they might cite, uh, you know, sort of. Let's see if I have the the book here. I do. Uh, this is Beecham and Childress. This was one of our foundational texts at school, The Principles of BioMedical Ethics. So some mm-hmm. clinicians may be familiar with it yes. as well. Um, and so they're the ones who, you know, I don't know if they coined or focused on this, these terms like autonomy, non beneficence, justice, um, and things like the Belmont Report, which people may or may not be familiar with, so I can explain really quickly, uh, came out of that. So things, for example, like human subject research, there were great atrocities committed in the past in this country. Um, for example, if anyone wants to Google the Tuskegee experiments. Yeah. Um, To remediate that and and ensure that it doesn't happen again, Um, the development of uh, something like the Belmont Report came about, which is, you know, a a framework uh, that helps people understand how should we approach human subject research. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't exist in the realm of animal research, which is another podcast we could do. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. absolutely. Although Tom Beecham, actually, along with Dave DeGrasse, recently uh, published um, a book I am going to misquote the name, but if you look them up, it's basically like the principles of biomedical ethics, but for animal ethics. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very Mm -hmm. interesting. So I'm now getting away from the exact uh, point of your question. But as an applied field uh, within the past 50 years, certainly um, it's emerged to be something that's much more prevalent, that clinicians like yourselves receive ethics training. Uh, If you're conducting research, biomedical research, you have to go through things called institutional review boards or IRBs. So anyone listening who's in that uh, field or has been a student where they've undertaken an experiment, they may be familiar with that. And there's different rules and regulations for Mm -hmm. doing surveys versus using humans versus using animals. Um, And some of those bioethical principles come into play. For example, informed consent, data privacy, security, justice, equity. Non-discrimination. What happens, for example, a very interesting concept that's, that's bioethical in nature and that applies uh, in the field of genomics as well as AI um, is something called the return of results. There's the question of what happens when you deliver a result to a person and there's no medical actionability around it. Um, what does that mean? You know, should should you disclose it? Uh, do they even want to know? Sometimes people find things out that they don't want to know. So there's transcultural issues. You know, not everyone has the same ideas about healthcare and end of life decisions as people in the West might. So 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 there's just so many different uh, right. pieces, and so it touches everything, really. Um, and there are particular ethics issues that are very relevant to. To AI and there's a whole mm-hmm. field of neuroethics, as I'm sure you know. Correct. Right. Um, yeah. And AI really intersects with that.
0: Yeah, and and I think this would be a good time to kind of expand on that because we're so, you know, I, I think the whole concept of AI and AI being a part of our lives, I, I believe, and you know, from our conversations with some other AI experts, is happening really, really fast um, mm-hmm. in ways that. I believe, you know, societies, um, depending on their understanding and their their advancement as far as interaction with uh, artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. is concerned, it definitely is happening very fast. And I think, um, based on our conversations, I think we all need to be aware of the implications. And we all need to be involved as well, because Mm -hmm. whether we like it or not, it is going to affect us, it is going to affect our children's lives, Mm -hmm. our decision making, our health, and all the other aspects of our lives as well. So as someone in the field of ethics, what does your role look like when it comes to artificial intelligence? I know that that's a very broad question. And there are multiple different types of artificial intelligence as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, as an ethicist, what does that look like? What kind of conversations are the most important ones to have?
1: Yeah, that's there are so many important <laughs> questions and conversations to have with regard to that. Um, in my own role, just having worked with AI or having AI be tangential to a product I was developing, it was generally in the realm of sort of generation of personalized results and recommendations um, in the consumer health sector. Uh, those were my last two jobs, uh, and the last one specifically, I was working with epigenetics um, and uh, longevity. So, doing biological age calculations, um, and the the data science team, the science team, uh, did uh, use a neural net tool, so so deep learning AI, um, to really analyze extraordinarily large data sets that human beings couldn't do because it would just take you forever. So, there's mm-hmm. different sort of purposes. Of the AI. Um, currently, uh, obviously, I'm, I'm completing my degree part time, but I'm also um, working as a researcher on the NIH's Bridge to AI grant, which I think I had mentioned to you guys, which is really exciting. Yes. There's different modules in that grant, and I would suggest um, anyone who's interested go check out the website. Um, there's a, it's a whole program called Bridge to AI. and. Happily, there's a big ethics module uh, because the people who put this together realize, hmm, this isn't just about developing the technology. Wow, we really got a lot of ethics issues, so we should probably get some bioethicists involved. And so I feel very fortunate to be working, uh, you know, with people who are far senior to me and who have far more experience and are just really well well versed um, in the realm of ethics and AI ethics. So I'm learning from them, um, and in particular, I'm uh, working on a module on three-dimensional cell mapping, and ultimately what that will result in is n-of-one uh, recommendations, right? So so for anyone who doesn't know the term, that means uh, recommending for a, a therapeutic action that's just for me only, just for Aaron only, or just for, for one of you guys only. Um, and there's many reasons statistically why that can be fraught, um, but that is what AI gives us the power to do or so we think now. And so um, in the realm of three-dimensional cell mapping, that's the team that I'm working on. Um, and so we're exploring a lot of questions around things like return of results. Uh, how can you be certain that that this recommendation is precise? How do you make the patient comfortable? How is the the clinician going to feel with pres- making, you know, prescribing some intervention using this uh, this tool. And so in that context, I know this all sounds very jumbled, but in that context, there's a number of things um, that we focus on that are might be interesting to the audience because they can Google these terms. Um, and they are things like transparent AI, explainable AI, and contestable AI. And when we think about this in the context of, you know, patient consent for treatment using some sort of AI intervention, it's very important because you need to be able to explain how you arrived at this result to the patient and the clinician. Ideally, you'd want to be able to understand what the inputs are in that sort of transparent AI, right? So like um, what's the the computation behind the machine's decisions and how can you see into that decision-making structure? You want to be able to justify the decision to make it more powerful and explain the findings. And then contestable is interesting because you also want to be able to say when the AI is wrong. And it's really funny because we've seen that, I think, a lot with ChatGPT lately on Twitter, where people say, oh, look, I put in two plus two and it gave me five, or whatever, or much more into various things than that. And so just I'm just talking about medicine. It's really important um, because a provider needs to be able, even though they're, you know, humans are fallibles, Potentially, so are machines, and so um, it actually is good for liability as well. So, I don't know if that answers it, but
2: there's, there's, yeah, yeah, I mean, no, absolutely. Uh, the 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 reality is, we were talking about this last time, is um, that this thing is moving so much faster than than we're prepared for it. Again, uh, in the sense that um, even that decision making of whether AI is wrong might be past us before we can even get to that point of making giving giving ourselves the right to make that decision for it. Yeah. Most of the people are not even there in the conversation as far as the, the decision algorithm that the, the, uh, not of the AI itself, but the AI use we're not in, in that conversation. And one of the things that you said, which is incredibly important that everybody, everyone has to be, has to get involved in the ethics of this or, or how this manifests in in human world or in sentient world, in in, in a world where uh, feeling, thinking, imperfect beings are using these or being used by these, yet there isn't as much conversation. I tell you, I'm I'm talking to the medical world and I'm telling them that there's a chance, and I think I'm being kind, Uh, I I personally think that it's not a chance, it's absolute, that within the next few years, doctors will be replaced, not because the machines are better, it's just insurance reasons. It, it's it's algorithmic. It's gonna do a better job than what? I mean, why are you not getting involved in the conversation? Not only are physicians not involved in the conversations, they are not even aware of the implications that mm-hmm. are around the corner. We're talking about ten years, fifteen years, or maybe even shorter. Who knows? And and so how do you? I mean, and I love the fact that this is your what you're studying because I think it's one of the most important things humanity is doing is, first of all, having the conversation about ethics and AI, but then also creating mechanisms of how human ethics can be interjected, connected uh, uh, in some way. So um, what do you think we should do to increase these conversations in the different sectors? That's the question, yeah.
1: That's a great question. I agree with your soliloquy before that. So
2: as usual, we we agree. Or or diatribe, depending on how you see it.
1: Um, I agree with that too. You know, yeah. I first I will say that in in my own life, and and in as someone who is not only studying this and, and researching this, but also I have practical experience of building digital products and technologies. Yeah, I, I I really believe that technology is rarely, if ever, inherently bad in and of itself. It's the deployment and the use that can be negative, right? And you have to be very careful because people will demonize a technology, and then you've lost the plot, right, because you haven't taken the appropriate steps. And so because of that, and I think I said this earlier, is that we really have to build these ethical considerations into our tools at the beginning stages and then leave those tools and processes very flexible for refining as more ethical issues arise, as people start to use and deploy these tools. And by building these considerations in first, and the way you do that is, you know, by uh like sort of this pluralistic approach, right? You need to interview Mm -hmm. and include various stakeholders. Stakeholders would include clinicians, patients, payer systems, governments, hospitals, administrators, right? There's lots of different stakeholders. You need to look at case law and precedents, you need to do user testing, right? So like before you you start building anything, you need to take all of these ethical considerations into account and engage different stakeholders. So that's part of that process. And then I really do think, and this is where there's a big gap, is that the onus is also um, the people or groups who are actually building this stuff. So whether you're a chief product officer like I was, whether you're a CTO, whether you're someone who's helping to build the ML, you're a data scientist. Like, there's many, many, many different roles. Even as a patient, you need to know your rights. You should be educated. So there's, like, there's there's so many different areas of responsibility. You're proactively strengthening the tool and its chance for success okay. if you do that. And I would I would qualify that statement by saying that also I believe success is not just about revenue and it's not just about, you know, meeting your clinical endpoints. It's also about mitigation of harm It's about public perception because if the public does not trust you for one reason or another, you don't really have a chance and things start to get very muddy very fast. Um, So like perspective issues are going to emerge and you need to be agile and able to react. But I I think what's very important is not allowing AI to suffer from the same sort of reductionist reactive paradigm that the rest of medicine is plagued by these things. And we see it play out so often and it's not anyone being nefarious it's just that's that's the that's the paradigm in which we are operating and i don't want ai to fall into that trap it's already progressing and so that's why i'm very excited that you know on on such a large NIH program that they brought at the CISTS in to say okay what should we be thinking about? There's so many things to think about. And the great part is that, you know, in our module, we're also liaising with the science and technical teams at the other universities. who are building the technology, and I, that's how it's got to be done. And yeah. it's the reason that I went to HMS to get this degree in the first place. It was because I came from industry, and I was like, whoa, we're really in deep trouble here. It's not that anyone was doing anything like, well... Terribly overtly wrong all the time. It was just that people don't even think they're not like you said. They're not even questioning. They're not even asking the question. So involving all those stakeholders and saying, "Hey, what do you know about this? What is it that you're concerned about?" You know, as a clinician, you're going to have different concerns potentially than a regulator or a patient, and that's okay. Yeah, but we have to bring everybody into the conversation. And then ethics provides frameworks. It doesn't provide answers. It's a lot like law. Sometimes it's like, well, big problems, and no, no, no straight answer, because um, there's just too many variables.
0: Right, right. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and I'm so, I'm so glad to hear that there are programs like the one that you mentioned from NIH. Um, and there are departments and universities that are promoting education in that department. i'm I'm, you know, as as a physician, I remember uh, you know, taking a small little bioethics course in medical school, but it was so small. and we go through uh, you know, um accreditation and getting our certificates for Belmont's report. And every year we have to watch some videos that we've watched every single year. and. For the most part, we know the answers anyway, so we just kind of (laughs) skip them. But um, it it sounds like with the advent of artificial intelligence and all this new version of existence that's coming about, I think um, instead of making it almost as a choice for people to learn more about it, I feel like it should be integrated into our educational systems and, you know, um, venues available for people who are not in, uh, who are not academicians, who are not in school, for them to be aware about it as well. Do you know of any models that exist for the general public to be made aware about the ethics of artificial intelligence?
1: That's a really good question, and I don't know that answer, Um, but I'm going to Google it as soon as we get off this call. And if there's not, then maybe I'll make one because... (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Or maybe we all make one together because there really should be... It's not hard. I mean, the the practice of bioethics is difficult. It's challenging. because. If it wasn't, if the question wasn't challenging, you wouldn't need the ethicist, right? So, 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 exactly. just like in hospitals, clinical ethics teams are called in when there's a real big problem that there's no clear answer to. But I totally agree with you. Just like nutrition, you have to have this in medical school. In fact, I would say it's a, it's a moral obligation to yeah. be well
2: versed in this. That's that that's which is very meta. But I I, I, yeah. I do think that. I know I, I I fully agree. I'm, I'm uh, to be honest, just to kind of bring back, not to be sensational, but but just my personal worry. Um, you brought up several concepts that um, that uh, the in- industry's needs might, might, uh, and, and you alluded to it indirectly, that the industry's needs might uh, supersede the need to implement uh, ethics rules and uh, regulations and guidelines and all of those things. Um, we always say this, but reality is some signals are more powerful than other signals and the market signals are often and always are more powerful than the the ethical signals that try to abate them, um, mm-hmm. or 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 guide them, um, and I worry about that. Whereas in the past we could we could get away with that with cars. Okay, the worst case scenario, forty thousand people dying from car accidents. Um, uh, medications, uh, worst case scenario, some side effects that that are caught a little late. Few people uh, suffering from that, but. But when it comes to AI, I worry that the consequences might be much more dire and and, uh, existential. Um, And if we don't address those ethics early and fast and hard um, with the same signal, with the same valence as the market forces, uh, it's going to take over. Because then the market forces are also driven by this incredible tool that they've never seen before. Mm -hmm. Whether it's as far as uh, manipulating data, as far as creating data, as far as now, next step is which is creating outputs and outcomes and, and and products. It it has never seen anything like this, and that force is going to be so powerful that it's going to try actively to. And this is not me being uh, conspiratorial, uh, but it's it, it, and th- this is not a subconscious. It's the subconscious mechanism of the market. It's going to try to silence the the anything that abates it or or slows it down or guides it. I I really truly I wanted to have this conversation with you today because I I I think that what you do and others that are in the realm that are learning this and because we're all learning um, Mm -hmm. and 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 are going to be in the guide guiding you know creating the guiding principles have to get a lot more light. They have to get a lot more light because I think otherwise we're just going to talk and talk, but the market forces are going to just take over. And this machine that we have no control over, as it told us with the first 10 principles, <laughs> 10, 10 <laughs> words that it has about itself, you know, uh, that it's going to be way worse than anything we've experienced before. Um, given that mm-hmm. I want to give light to people like you who are writing these, doing these things, and and hopefully will be the leaders going forward. Um, how do you see your career um, 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 evolving, especially as it pertains to AI and ethics?
1: Oh well, I, I agree with you on the on the the, the fear or concern. It's warranted, and I think you're absolutely correct. Um, and we could and should talk about the why AI is a, is especially uniquely risky because I, I'm actually writing about yeah. that because um, I do believe there are unique risks, but. In terms of um, where I see things going, I'll tell you where I don't see it going because <laughs> this is this is uh, uh, an example yeah. of, of you know a not not too uh, distant um, thing that happened, and I, I I will never forget this. I was speaking with the founder of a very successful biotech startup about their approach to ethics because some of the applications of their technology are really ethically dicey. It's not inherently bad tech; it's just anyone could see you know how this could be problematic as well as th- this this founder and their company. And they said, well, you know, look, if we sell it to someone and so they do something nefarious, that's that's their problem. You know, we wash our hands of it. And so I thought, first of all, I know exactly where I don't want to work, you know, because that's what brought me to buy my in the first place. I just yes. I'm not interested in that. <laughs> it's so unfortunate, Dean, because it's what you are alluding to, which is the market forces, the paradigm we already live in. This is how people think. Um, and they've gotten away with it for a long time, because when yeah. you talk about autonomy, you got autonomy for people, and you have autonomy for corporations, um, because corporations are people. And you don't have autonomy for the animals. That's another conversation. So, you know, this this idea, yeah. I, I just think, is so irresponsible and intellectually lazy that, you know, it's not your responsibility. It's, it's morally indefensible. But even if you didn't believe that... It also makes the technology vulnerable to being bastardized or demonized, and I think a, a reasonable parallel could yeah. be nuclear technology. It's not perfect, um, but it's a severe double-edged sword, right? Where you have great benefit potentially, and then this great, great, great risk that's really serious and unique. Um, and I don't, I don't know that that's exactly the right parallel, but but I do know that this this technology is powerful enough and serious enough and risky enough that. We have to have people, I hope, in places, not just in research. I'm happy to be doing research now because hopefully that will inform practical application. What I don't want to happen was never my intention going into the the academic world of bioethics was I'm there to learn and to publish and all that sort of stuff. But I'm ultimately there to take these learnings and practically apply them. And, And I think it will be a real failure if people just sit in their ivory tower and write a bunch of brilliant articles and don't actually descend into the, the messy, messy real world where there's no tenure track and, you know, and there's no award ceremonies and, and say, okay, yeah. I have some, I have this framework. I'm going to wade into this murky water and try and figure out how I can help people apply this. So I don't know what that looks like for, for me. There's a few things percolating, but I know that I will take. These learnings, and I'm always continually learning, uh, and try at least yeah. to be self-aware and maybe to help others say, hey, can we work together? You know, not in a, in a sort of pedantic way, but just to say, like, why don't we consider this all together? Because bioethics is a pluralistic activity. You need to involve everyone. I don't want to tell people what to do, and I shouldn't. It's just we really have to have those conversations because the risk, as you point out, is really great. And I don't believe that it means we shouldn't do it. Um, I'm not a Luddite. Like, I love technology. I work in it. It means we should do it responsibly. And we certainly shouldn't default to what that founder told me, which was, well, they use it
2: badly. That's their problem. Really? You know, Is it? That's a tacit understanding of a lot of people out there in the market mm-hmm. uh, system, and and I'm I, again, I'm not bashing the market system. It's done amazing stuff uh, to to better humanity and, and reduce poverty and all of that stuff. But it's, but we know the negative consequences as as it pertains to health, human value, and you know, animal rights, and all of these things. It's 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 significant consequences are evident. So we really. We really have to have robust conversations and voice in this. I'm I'm worried that that's not going to happen. And I tell you, um, whatever you feel about Elon and 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 his antics, uh, one concept that he brought up was that there's no way to, to well I'm I'm paraphrasing. There's no way to beat AI or uh, stop its growth and um, uh, and and it's um, um, and we're talking about general intelligence where it gets smarter than all human beings and all that. There's no way that we can stop that. If it's if it's not us, it's gonna be somebody else, somewhere else, some out of the country. So that competition is not gonna be stopped. So the only way to kind of address this from the human perspective, from the imperfect, imperfection of human uh, feeling and emotion and sentience, which where the ethics comes in, uh, is uh, by joining it. That's where neural net mm-hmm. comes in, where you connect with a machine. So it's a definitely, de- definitely a dystopian concept uh, where we become part of the machines, part of the Borg, as it as it, oh, <laughs> have it Yeah, but that's that's a that's a scary path that might be forced upon us.
1: Well, it's possible. I definitely. I mean, it's certainly statistically possible. I, I don't think anyone would argue with you about that. Um, I don't know what the statistical likelihood is, or if anyone's calculated. But we could probably ask Chat GPT. That would be a good question. Uh, Interesting. <laughs> How statistically <laughs> yes. likely are is this? If this is going to happen, and when? Um, but as we've seen, ChatGPT is is in its infancy and it's flawed as well. So it's 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 also this is why AI has risk and bias, right? Like who's putting stuff into this thing? So it, it depends what it's crawling yeah. and, and hearing. But you're totally right. And it's funny because um, for my clinical ethics class, not my neuroethics ethics class, my clinical ethics class uh, uh, last year, I actually wrote a paper on this topic uh, specifically around the challenges for the bedside clinician and using using AI-assisted N of one uh, medicine recommendations. And I've changed my opinion, but I had written, I wrote this quote so I could read it to you. AI is not inherently more risky or uncertain than other methodologies. Rather, it's the context in which the AI is used that should dictate the degree of precaution required. I've since backtracked a little since I've become much, much as, yeah. as we, you know, as we were allowed to do, since I've learned more um, in the field. And I've said, listen, yes? context okay. is important, but on reflection, I don't know that I believe what I said. Um, I think it's more inherently risky. The fact that it's more risky doesn't make it bad, but it does mean that it requires specific precautions, which is what I'm working on now. Um, what those precautions are. Yeah. And the reason I think it's more risky, and I'd love to hear what you guys think, but it's uniquely challenging because if we think about the genesis of other controversial biotechnologies or things that are paradigm changing and, you know, have grave ethical implications, the the sequencing of the human genome, right, the field of genomic medicine, CRISPR, gene drives, um, Mm -hmm. For me, it comes back to a question of amplification. And AI, I think, amplifies any of those ethical problems we would see in those emerging biotechnology fields. And the reason why Mm -hmm. is that I think it has to do with the aims of AI and the expectation that, just like Musk alluded to, it aims to become autonomously intelligent in a way that no other technology has, right? Which means it's driving that fear. And that very beneficial paradigm yeah. shift that we all imagine. And that means it requires special attention, I think, in a way that nothing else in our lifetime, maybe in human history, ever has. Because the risks and benefits are very amplified, but also they're very, very different. When we think of the autonomous intelligence and infinitely expanding intelligence, right? And so I, I think it's special because it's really risky. And there's, a, I mean, this is very meta but if the, inten- no, if the intention
2: I love the intention of yeah. AI
1: is to is in a way to be unknown. for example, we can't ever hope to know the full spectrum of consciousness of a living being. We like ask someone who studies consciousness, we know almost nothing right We think maybe there's some quantum effect in the cerebrospinal fluid. We have no idea. Um, and so if the intention is to create AI that becomes conscious in its own way, it will it be impossible for us to know it. That could be okay or not. But it's a completely special challenge, and I think that articulating that for people so they understand that, and then building frameworks and precautions and g- gating mechanisms with that in mind is very, very important. I, 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 I will argue forever that I think it's really specially risky. And anyone who's watched Star Trek knows that, or any sci-fi film. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah yes yes yeah, yeah. absolutely as a dedicated turkey, tre- tre- i <laughs> can uh, attest to that yeah. um the the concept of amplification and um essentially transmitting or sharing or dispersing this information to the general public seems to be a challenge at this point things are moving so fast and we've seen this and um you know in in history, how when something that is novel it, when it's introduced, it's always met with severe mm-hmm. backlash. Um, as human beings, we have a tendency to go into a defensive mode when something is invasive. And AI being so invasive and involved in every aspect of our life is being met with that kind of challenge. Um, people tend to go back to uh, their nature's fallacy and saying anything that is artificial is bad and not allowing it to be a part of them, their mm-hmm. lives as well. Um, as, as, a, as a person who is in medicine, but not necessarily very involved in the field of technology, I don't see that messaging being taken mm-hmm. care of. There's, no, uh, there's a huge gap between what is happening and what people actually see and understand as far as artificial intelligence is concerned. Are there companies or individuals that are serving as communicators between what is happening and what people should know and allaying their fears? I don't know of any, but just because I don't know of
1: any doesn't mean they don't exist. I I, I, I I wish that there was more of a mainstream voice than than Elon Musk and we don't have to talk about him, but. Um, some of the things he says I agree with and some things I obviously really don't. Uh but he's yeah. he's right about the, the the quote that you uh offered in earlier. So I don't know yeah. of a yeah. I wish that there was some like
0: yeah. superstar trendy AI ethicist, you know. There is a big need, isn't it? I mean, on yeah. social media, on news, on on you know, everywhere we, where we could actually essentially understand the um the 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 different things that are happening, um, how is it going to affect our lives and how people can actually be involved in the decision-making to a certain extent as well. Because at the end of the day, it's going to be their vote and their involvement totally. in in receiving those um, those methodologies and whatever, whatever uh, implications AI has. I know that things are moving really fast, but I don't see that that communication happening in the society. And I think there's a big need for it.
1: I agree. I don't see it either. And I think part of it is because, as we've all sort of alluded to uh, in the conversation, you know, people, I don't know if it's the market or the paradigm in which we live, but in the nature's fallacy, but but people are um, as defensive as they are about saying, oh, it's not natural. Now I'm going to move again. I'm going to, you know, uh, be totally against it. I think people who are very pro-technology have the opposite problem, where it's any precautionary measure you might suggest is seen as you're a Luddite, you're not allowed, yeah. you're stymieing, know, progress. And I'm like, guys, there's a Venn diagram here. That, you know, there's a p- space in the middle where these are not mutually exclusive. You can be skeptical and also help advance the technology. So I think you have these yeah. two competing sides. One side is, this is totally wrong and crazy. The sky is falling, here's all the bad stuff. And then the other side, you know, is super pro, hey man, it's gonna change everything and we're gonna merge with computers. And if you say anything against it, we don't wanna hear from the ethicists because they're sticks in a mud. And part of that, and we talk about this a lot in my capstone sessions and bioethics, is like, what is the role of an ethicist and how do people perceive you and do you even call yourself that? And when you do, and you walk into a situation or a public a forum, what does that mean to people immediately? Uh, stigmatize you, shut you down. Um, so you're totally right that there is a space for, uh, I hope, <laughs> uh, critically yeah. thinking conversation, dialogue, and and more people don't shut each other down. And I don't think it's the job of any one person to go be a spokesperson. I think it's the job of a person to be a facilitator as an ethicist and say, hey, here's some general guidelines to get us started. Like, what does everybody think? Because you should be occurring information and processing it and saying, okay, I we do this when we build products and user research. Like you think you know what people are concerned about, but what are they actually concerned about when you ask them? And I'd love to know like what is the prevailing thing that people are upset about? I'm sure there's surveys in the space of AI and medicine, but it's a much bigger dialogue and you're right that it's doesn't it's not out there.
2: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I um Amazing. but um um my my um uh, not to oppose, I, Aisha, my concern is that the market forces are way more powerful in this case than, than naturalistic fallacy or people trying to stay away from it. It's that the, because the gain is so much greater, even at the individual business level, everybody, all I've heard about is everybody talking about how great it's going to be for their businesses, for their school, for their education, for this, that, and other. Yes, all those are true. Absolutely. I'm as excited as anybody else when it comes to AI and what it can do and what it ought to do. You know, it's the ought and is uh, uh, phenomenon. You know, what yeah. it ought to do is absolutely mind boggling. And it's going to be, it's not, it, we wouldn't even say it's the next revolution of human. Uh, it's n- the next level of human uh, evolution. It's because it's uh, exponentially at a different scale. Um, but at the same time, um, uh, we, the conversation of ethics must be loud and and clear. And, and as you said it beautifully last time, and then even this time, Everybody in their own fields should start these conversations. Yeah. I think that's where it starts. I think you're right. There's not going to be one leader. It's going to be everybody saying that, um, um we need to talk about the human component or the sentient component in this. And, uh, um, um, I, I, I worry that the, 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 I worry that the awareness and that which follows, which is followed by action, which is followed by movement is way behind the, the movement of the <laughs> AI itself. But nonetheless, we have you, Aaron. You and and hopefully others like you that will that will be able to shine the light.
1: Yeah, I mean, listen, you're not wrong. I we suffer from this sort of living in reactivity, right? And and I've always said, like, ah, oh, you got to wait for a real big crisis, you know, a pandemic for anyone to pay attention to zoonotic diseases coming from factory farms. I'm yes. not sure that even worked this time around, but at least there's more conversation about AMR and stuff yeah. like that. Unfortunately, I don't know if this is like a flaw in our human design, but maybe you guys would know, you're you're a neurologist. Like, are we wired to only react? Because it's not until there's, when there's a catastrophe, this is like trolleyology, there's going to be a catastrophe. The self-driving car theory, right? The car hits a baby. Who is at fault? the AI or yeah. is it the guy I, that I, built the I, AI I. or is it the manufacturer of the car or is it the person that was last sitting in the car or is it the environment? Like, And so there's going to be backlash. And that's why I like keep stomping on this, this this soapbox of like, hey, unless you think about these things first and build these mechanisms into the product, you are going to inevitably reach a point where there is a catastrophe. And guess what? Now they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater because now it's your tech that's bad. You know, and and, and regulators, legislators don't know anybody. They're not well-versed on this stuff. So they'll say, oh, well, nope, nope, just broad stroke. We're just going to ban this thing. And so, like, there's that feature of it as well, or or God forbid someone's going to get really hurt, or there'll be some sort of disaster. And then people will say, oh, you know what? We should put some regulations. We should have a Belmont report, because look at what happened at Tuskegee, right? So... I, I am with you that I'm a little yeah. pessimistic, <laughs> like we might as humans, that's how we operate, but the best we can do is try to be proactive and make this yeah. field tower in academia.
2: Yeah. Even, yeah, even the ethics. So, I mean, I'm, and not to become really pessimistic because I'm usually known as the optimist, I'm <laughs> very optimistic about things, but the, so we talk about ethics, but the parameters of ethics have not been determined by humanity how do we decide what's ethical at at, at the individual level, at group level, at at acute level, at chronic level, at the, you know, at at the resource level or at the output level? I mean, those are the mechanisms that actually drive perception or interpretation of ethics. I mean, what we have in society, the divides that we have in society for the most part are not so much economic anymore. Well, in certain places, they're mostly how we interpret ethics, whether it's coming to us uh, or whether we we see it at the individual level, we haven't even made a decision on that uh, 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 at that level. Where how do we decide ethics? Even if we create a sliding scale of ethics, you know, and and that's a whole different talk. <laughs> Let's say we create something of that nature. Then how do we apply that to this concept, yeah. and then apply it to global, not just at the at this American you know, United States level, Western level, global level. How's that going to happen? Uh, I'm, I'm a little incredulous, I'm a little worried, but that's why I think that conversations with, with amazing people like you, uh, it's so important. Your work is so important. If you wanna write that Belmont Report of AI, we are on board, we're loved. We'll, we'll take the neuro-behavioral component or the human sentient component of the, <laughs> the, the important of this little imperfect limbic system, which was there just, yeah. But how we are—we are literally that, and that's what's important. So, uh, yeah, you're doing amazing work, and we, 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 we wish you, we wish you, incredible power to be able to take on this challenge. There are ways as well,
1: because I think we probably all on this call agree, and your listeners will probably agree that you know everything in this world is interdependent and interconnected. My my favorite uh, philosopher, I think, is Dick Not Han. The late uh, Zen Buddhist monk, and he always talked about interbeing. In fact, my favorite book of last year was called "Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet," which is his book. I highly recommend. Of you know abuse on a factory farm. You guys know I work with animal save movement, so we see investigative footage all the time. When I see that, the thing I comment on Instagram, like normal comment, is like, "Guys, the way that we treat animals reflects the way that we treat each other." You know, so how, how, to some degree, I'm pessimistic because I'm like, "Gosh." We can't even treat other living beings with dignity and respect. It's not distinct from the challenge that we're all in this call focused on, which is, hey, let's expand our moral sphere of consideration to include all beings and entities. We don't live in a vacuum. Anyone who studies biology knows that, we we, and we 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 are, it's a homeostatic uh, universe here, yeah. so, you know, uh, and AI is now a part of it, whether you like it or not, it may disrupt homeostasis, but you better figure out how to live with it, because if not, you're just going to be sick. That's my concluding part.
0: <laughs> it's a great conversation. Wonderful. Well, Wonderful. Thank- thankful that yeah. AI is going to broaden our perspective and force us to have these difficult conversations.
2: Yeah.
0: Thank you so much Erin. Thank Aaron. you Erin. We really is appreciate it.